0: Hello and welcome to Season of the Bitch, where it's our pod, our choice. (laughs) Today we have Zoe, Bianca,
1: Bianca, Julia,
0: and Kellen. And today we're going to be talking about the absolute hellscape, that is abortion access in the U.S., uh, this episode came out of some frustrations that I've been having, as well as, I think, some of the other co-hosts, um, about seeing people talk about what's happening with the Supreme Court and Roe Suede Wade as, like, this end-all, be-all for abortion access. Um, of course, for being overturned would be, like, huge and catastrophic, um, especially, like, on a symbolic level, but there's so many ways in which access is already overturned, um, which primarily affects low-income people and people of color, which we're going to get into more. Um, and there's a lot more to reproductive justice than just abortion access. So if you haven't listened to our history of gynecology episode, definitely recommend going back to that for more of the history surrounding um, gynecology and especially forced sterilization. So I wanted to start off with a quote from Gail Rubin, which just generally really speaks to me about the political obsession with like policing sex and sexuality, which goes. To some, sexuality may seem to be an unimportant topic, a frivolous diversion from the more critical problems of poverty, war, disease, racism, famine, or nuclear annihilation. But it is precisely at times such as these, when we live with the possibility of unthinkable destruction, that people are likely to become dangerously crazy about sexuality.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I love the scale Rubin quote. I feel like she does a really good job of just like capturing how moral panics about sexuality work. Um And I think, I definitely recommend folks check out more of her work if they're interested in that. Um, Yeah, I love
0: the point. Oh, sorry. just Sorry. um, (laughs) No, just today I was reading about, like, I've been reading about uh, the history of feminist critiques of marriage, but specifically how um, a lot of, like, male leftists historically, including, like, Lenin, including Mao, have been like, yeah, it's just that, um, like, women's issues and sexual politics are, like, kind of bourgeois and, like, individualistic, and there's this, like... Just like general notion of that so i really like how this um quote speaks to like that not being true obviously
1: right exactly um so before we jump into kind of what abortion access is looking like in the us today um i just wanted to talk a little bit about the history here um and a lot of this info that i'm going to share comes from the book radical reproductive justice foundation theory practice Critique which is this really great extensive collection of some of the knowledge building work of a reproductive justice group that's called Sister Song Women of Color Health Collective. They're really important in the reproductive justice and access space. Um, I feel like people often talk about abortions like they're this sort of new modern thing, especially people who are anti-abortion, like it's kind of this new like contemporary concern in our crazy modern world. Um, but abortions really aren't a new thing at all. Um, so historically, like pre 1900s, midwives and other mostly female healers in the U.S. passed down sort of knowledge about traditional, I'm uh, sorry, about natural abortion methods and um, So these were usually shared in kind of like an oral tradition way outside of like universities and more traditional institutional knowledge structures. Um, For example, in pre-colonial times, a lot of indigenous tribes had methods of abortion that included eating or smoking certain plants, including thistles. Um, And then later enslaved people often had methods that they would use as well, um, including eating cotton root bark. Um, So like part of the cotton plant that many enslaved people were forced to help grow also was used as an abortion method, which I find kind of interesting. Um, So this isn't to say abortion was like widely accepted or anything, but it was definitely a thing that happened historically. And mostly it was women and people with uteruses helping each other figure out how to deal with unwanted pregnancies. Um, But in the mid-1800s, male doctors started to sort of consolidate a lot of medical knowledge and try to prevent these more women-dominated professions and social roles, like midwives, from being able to give any sort of medical treatment or even medical knowledge. Um, And that's really when we start to see these laws come in explicitly banning abortion. Connecticut was the first state to pass laws about abortion in 1821, And by 1873, there was this federal law passed called the Comstock Law that made it illegal to mail any information about abortions or birth control. So basically making it a crime to not just help someone have an abortion, but even just literally tell them how they could do it on their own. Um, And this really tight control of knowledge sharing, I think, is a trend that we really see continuing into today and is a big part of how the right continues to try to control pregnant people's bodies
0: yeah thank you for all that history i have this zine that's called it's something like ancient wisdom it's all about like herbal techniques for abortion which now i'm like should have pulled it out but oh
1: that's so cool
0: yeah it's really cool i'll i will find it and send you guys pictures later and right now my cat is jumping on my head yet again (laughs) she's like i would like to know about abortion thank you But, yeah, I wanted to just go over, like, a little overview of what abortion looks like in the U.S. currently. So, approximately one in four people, or one in three, according to some statistics, so somewhere in there, um, people with a uterus will have an abortion by age 45, which I think is more common than a lot of people think, um, given, I didn't write down the specific statistic, but, like, the, the number of people who think they know someone who's had an abortion is, like, much lower than the amount of people that have had them, so... Um, yeah, approximately three quarters of people who seek abortions are low income. And since 1990, over 700 restrictive policies have passed across the U.S. So these are both state and federal, like total. And 330 of those have been since 2010. So that's a lot. Um, very good at math. In case you weren't sure, that's a lot of them. (laughs) Uh, Which we'll get more into specifics on later. Um, also, from 2008-2011, the number of clinics in the U.S. decreased by 4%, and by 2014, it decreased an additional 6%. So, for anyone who's like, we just need Dems as president, and everything is fixed. It turns out, shockingly, we're all shocked here, that is <laughs> untrue. Um, and with that, we'll segue into one of everyone's favorite segments, Kellen shits in the Supreme Court.
2: <laughs> yes, thank you Zoe for that introduction. <laughs> um, I am always thrilled when I get to come on this podcast and talk shit about the Supreme Court. Um, so obviously the most significant Supreme Court case regarding abortion is Roe v. Wade, and I thought we could get in a little bit to the history of Roe v. Wade. Um, uh Side note, you know, in seventh grade civics, everybody in my class got to pick a Supreme Court case and like research it and present on it, and I picked Roe. So um, I'm basically an expert and have been for 15 years. Thank wow. you very much. It's such
0: an honor to have
2: you here. <laughs> oh yes, of course. Um, as a side. <laughs> Side note, this is like not important at all, but I just wanted to share with you guys. There's this kid in my class named Robert Jones, and to this day, I still remember what he chose in seventh grade history, which was Bob Jones University, the United States, because it was basically his name. Oh my like, god. <laughs> not to dox Robert Jones or anything. Um, but that was actually this case where a religious university in South Carolina made interracial dating literally grounds oh, for expulsion. My god. But still wanted federal funding in 1983. Oh my God. But I digress. Anyway. Do you, oh
3: my God. Do you know if Robert Jones knew what that case was about
2: prior to selecting it? 100% no. Oh my God. He gosh. was in for a wild ride, truly. Um, wow. Yeah. Shout out to Robert Jones. He will never listen to this. Um, but Maybe he's you know. become
0: radicalized since that. And maybe he there's to the literally
2: bottom. no chance of <laughs> <laughs> oh Fair. Um But that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, back to Roe v. Wade. Um, I thought it would be good to go over some of the main players. So number one is Norma McCorvey, who was a woman who lived in Texas and wanted an abortion. But in that state, abortions were illegal except to save the life of the mother. At this time, and for very good reason, she wanted to remain anonymous. So in court filing, she was referred to as Jane Roe, which is where we get the first half of the name. There's nobody with the actual name Roe involved with the case. Wade is a real person. Henry Wade, the Dallas County District Attorney, whose job it was to argue that people with uteruses should not have control over those organs. So McCorvey, AKA Roe, sued on the grounds Texas's laws on abortion were unconstitutional. Um, The district court ruled in her favor and then Texas appealed it to the Supreme Court, where the justices also found in her favor for those keeping score at home. It was a 7-2 split. So um, not unanimous, but it wasn't it wasn't like a close call. Um, But the details of the ruling are really important. And um, as somebody who has no legal training, I hope I do a decent job of explaining them. Uh, We talked last week in the um, History of Voter Suppression um, episode about the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equal protection to all Americans under the law. Um, This is what the court used as the basis for his ruling. However the grounds for legalizing abortion were not, and um, forgive me for using binary and gender essentialist language here because this is what the court used at the time and actually still uses today. um, the, the, The ruling wasn't that women should have rights over their own bodily autonomy or shouldn't have their rights over bodily autonomy restricted in ways that men don't. That's not the kind of equal protection we're talking about. Instead, the court ruled on what a lot of reproductive rights advocates think of as much flimsier uh, justifications. And that is that the 14th Amendment's due process clause creates the expectation of a quote unquote right to privacy. Um, So people like pod nemesis Amy Coney Barrett, for example, reject this idea on its face. And honestly, like it kind of makes sense because there's nothing about privacy written into the amendment. It's like this inferred right um, that they kind of sort of invented as a justification, even though arguably there were more solid grounds on which to justify abortion access. Um, And this justification in some ways kind of reminds me of a lot of liberal justifications for policy that are legitimately good, but like the justifications are bad. So for example, it makes me think of like immigration, maybe this is a stretch, but like liberals might support more forgiving or wider advanced um, immigration policies, which like we on the left would see as good, But they don't justify it on the basis that we would of something like borders are inherently inhumane or the idea that every human has worth and we have no right to build up walls and keep people out of our country built on stolen land instead it's like well immigrants help the economy which just leaves you open to attack because like what about immigrants (laughs) who don't help the economy are they just fucked? are they unworthy like this is kind of what's happened to abortion rights over the years because Roe wasn't this like full-throated defense of abortion rights or of people's right to bodily autonomy. It was a qualified recognition of the right to privacy that only goes so far and has to be counterbalanced against the state's interest in quote-unquote protecting life.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So as we'll talk about, Roe has been rolled back over time in a bunch of ways that we'll get into and has been undermined in lots of different ways. Um, and it really is a shame that like the like rights of people with uteruses to determine like what they want to do with those uteruses is under the jurisdiction of something like the supreme court
3: mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much for that Kellen. i think like one piece of legislation that sort of undermines the right for people to access abortion um that not only blocks abortion access, but like specifically makes access more difficult for low income people is the Hyde Amendment, Mm. which was passed in 1976. And it was named after its chief sponsor, Republican Congressperson Henry Hyde, who at the time was one of the most uh, vocal anti-abortion voices in Congress. So what the Hyde Amendment does is it bars the use of federal funds, including Medicaid, from being used to pay for abortion, except in the cases of incest or rape, or if the pregnancy threatens the life of the pregnant person. So it was estimated that before the passage of the Hyde Amendment, around 300,000 abortions were paid for annually with government funding. Um, And again, as we discussed earlier, one of the most glaring problems with the Hyde Amendment and other pieces of legislation like it is that it basically punishes poverty. So if you're on Medicaid and need or want an abortion, you in most cases would need to find another way to pay for it or arrange for an abortion without um, the aid of a hospital or medical center. Uh, And so like the constitutionality of the Hyde Amendment was argued in many different courts. So as one example, in 1977, a woman named Cora McRae filed a suit in the U.S. court for the Eastern District of New York, seeking to invalidate the Hyde Amendment. And in her suit, she was joined by a group of 16 New York City hospitals, as well as Planned Parenthood. So at the time of that suit, McRae was receiving Medicaid and was pregnant, and she wished to get an abortion. And actually, as a result of that suit, one of the judges on that court issued a preliminary injunction that required the U.S. Department of Health, Education, and Welfare to stop implementation of the Hyde Amendment. And so in other words, for that period of time, people could use federal funding like Medicaid once again to pay for abortions. However, in 1980, there was a Supreme Court ruling uh, that ruled that the Hyde Amendment was in fact constitutional. That was a 5-4 ruling. So thereby ending that injunction's power because uh, the Supreme Court was a higher court. And so the Hyde Amendment in its like skeletal form still exists to this day. Um, and I think it wasn't until 2016 that like, the, the uh, Democratic Party candidates made it a feature of their platform to repeal the Hyde Amendment. So speaking of Democratic candidates, uh, infamously, our new president-elect Joe Biden has long supported the Hyde Amendment, and um, he didn't switch his position on it publicly all the way until 2019, when his campaign formally announced that um, they actually did not support it. And so like this is not the only uh, conservative slash reactionary standpoint that joe biden has held for a long 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 time Um, but it is one of them and biden's like voting record on abortion related issues also has left much to be desired in the 2000s he voted numerous times to ban late-term abortions of all kind um for any reason and so like i'm just like thinking about like what took him so long to like flip on his stance like why the flip was so sudden and i think it's because like they finally realized like his campaign realized that the position that he held like personally was no longer the one being trotted out by the democratic party machine yeah so he realized that like the hyde amendment wasn't going to fit in with the health care plan that he and his team had devised and it just like wouldn't fit in with what the democratic party claimed to be its platform at the time so finally last year his campaign was like actually we don't support this amendment But it's key to remember that he did support it all the way until then.
1: Unreal. Yeah, just more evidence of why Joe Biden is an enemy of this podcast. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Another federal policy that I just wanted to mention that uh, goes along with this and I think helps support it. I'm going back to kind of the information restriction that I was talking about is um, so the prevalence of abstinence only sex education is also a big way that the federal government sort of tries to limit how people can get information about their own bodies and birth control and abortion Uh, Since the 1990s, the federal government has spent over a billion dollars funding abstinence-only sex education, which, for anyone who doesn't know, this doesn't include any information about birth control or abortion. Um, And listeners probably know that there's no evidence this method actually works. Like, people who get abstinence-only sex ed are just as likely to have sex, they just have less safe sex. Um, It's more likely to lead to unwanted pregnancies. Um, So this is another example of something that disproportionately hurts low-income people and people of color and really limits their ability to get abortions specifically, because if you go to a public school that relies on federal funding, if they receive this funding, then they may have to use abstinence-only education, so you're a lot more likely to get that type of education, whereas if you maybe go to a private school, you maybe come from a wealthier family, they have more financial freedom to teach sex ed however they want, and then you might actually be getting more accurate information about your body and your rights to get an abortion
0: uh, starting to feel like our federal government is just kind of bad like someone else just kind of yeah me?
3: i
1: just kind of have this
2: like slight yeah.
3: gut feeling inkling coming on It's
0: like this all just like doesn't really sound great yeah. well i
2: for one believe in the democratic party so <laughs> <laughs> they're yes. gonna build back better yeah <laughs> <laughs>
0: But lucky for us, it's not just the federal government that (laughs) has some issues. We're going to talk about some state governmental issues. (laughs) The (laughs) transition. The flawless transition. So as I talked about a little in the beginning, there are literally hundreds of um, state-level bans. Um, which take many forms, so I'm just going to kind of do like an overview of what a lot of those are. And then we'll get into a little more. But these include things such as mandatory parental consent, um, mandatory waiting periods, mandated counseling, the banning of Medicare funds from covering. So um, as Bianca described with the Hyde Amendment, that's a, a federal level ban on any um, Funding, But also a lot of states, including Pennsylvania, where Bianca and I are from, um, also bars state-funded health insurance from covering, which includes any public workers who are on that, and um, that also bars people from getting a supplemental insurance to cover abortions. So it's a pretty, like, airtight policy in the sense that there's no way for people um, on state-funded health care to get abortions. Uh, without paying out of pocket and then um one of the other big ones are called trap laws which uh, stands for targeted regulation of abortion provider laws which place unnecessary regulations on facilities such as specific like surgical regulations and things like that and that often causes clinics to be unable to do the procedure because they cannot meet these regulations which is of course designed on purpose
2: yeah, and I think it's it's like worth going into detail about what some of these restrictions look like in practice. So for example, a waiting period means that you have to speak to a provider first or receive quote unquote counseling and then wait 24 hours or more before you can actually have the procedure. Um, In states like Arkansas, the waiting is the waiting period is like 72 hours. Um, So you have to wait like three full days before you can get the health care that you need. Um, State funded health care may not cover abortions or like Zoe's talked about um, may only cover them in cases of rape or incest, which like how do you quote unquote prove that when the means of like proving that you've been sexually assaulted are to go through the court system, which A, takes forever, much longer than you normally have um, in the course of a pregnancy, and B, like never finds in favor of survivors anyway. State-funded healthcare may also only cover Um, abortions in the case of the mother's life being in danger, which is also subjective um, and kind of up to the, the determination of doctors and other medical officials. And sometimes even if doctors say so, they can be overruled by insurance people. Um, Multiple States have restrictions that don't allow abortions after around 20 weeks, which may sound like a long time, but remember that the weeks convention Um, begins counting from a person's last period, not from the actual date of conception. And many people don't know they're pregnant until their second missed period, which means that you're up to um, at least eight weeks for a lot of people before they recognize the pregnancy. And in terms of the trap laws that Zoe's talking about, a lot of them are about admitting privileges. So like Most doctors don't transfer um, patients to the hospital unless something is, like, gone terribly wrong. And some doctors have the ability who are doing things like, you know, massive surgeries, their, their patients go straight to the hospital, like, to sit in the hospital for days to recover, Um, My mom, for example, is a surgeon who does skin cancer removal and reconstruction. Her patients don't have to go to the hospital after that. They can go straight home. If you get an abortion, you don't have to convalesce in a hospital. However, what these trap laws, some of the things that these trap laws do is say that providers aren't allowed to give abortions unless they have what's called admitting privileges. And for hospitals to give you admitting privileges, it's like a whole bunch of bureaucratic stuff. It costs them money people who provide abortions don't have admitting privileges because there's no need for them like my mother who works in a hospital system literally within a hospital doesn't have admitting privileges to like the or er or to the er or to the like convalescent ward because she doesn't need them and she does cancer surgeries so like the because the hospital's like you don't need to use you don't need to use these beds. We don't need to go through the red tape to do this. And so I'm just giving this as an example because like if somebody who does like cancer removal doesn't have admitting privileges, people who do minimally invasive abortions certainly aren't going to have access. And a lot of them aren't attached to hospital systems the way that my mom even is. So it's like an additional, basically it's it's meant to drive people out of business. And in many cases it succeeds.
0: Yeah, I also just wanted to share some fun facts that if anyone ever tries to argue with you about these bans being in place because, like, it's dangerous or, you know, any, like, justifications, which are almost always false when it comes to abortion bans, Mm -hmm. um... So, and of course, me as the sage on the pod is like, let me explain to you how to argue with people about this if you have to. So, I will. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, my first fact is that colonoscopies have a mortality rate that's ten times higher than abortions. And, of course, none of these regulations are in place for colonoscopies. <laughs> um, and also there is significantly less follow-up and this study was, I think for six to eight weeks. So, uh, a six to eight week follow-up, there were significantly more issues when it comes to wisdom teeth removal than abortion. So not that we didn't already know this, but it just goes to show that these policies are solely about power and control. Any of the justification that's like about safety or like suddenly we care about women's safety is bullshit
2: seems unlikely Mm.
0: (laughs) seems a little fake
3: (laughs) yeah also and i think like zoe has touched on this a bit and other folks have already touched on this but like absent pieces of legislation that explicitly block abortion access there are also a lot of equally insidious things that aren't written into the law but rather are sort of baked into the structures of states and cities that make access to abortion more difficult so in a lot of states, particularly more rural areas, the nearest place to get a medically induced abort- abortion could be miles and miles away. Um, and other states have just one abortion center in the entire state. And that doesn't even take into consideration all of the bureaucratic elements, all the paperwork um, to successfully get an abortion. And so if you add on the factor of like things that are not written into the law, but are lo- logistically and structurally more difficult, it just exacerbates Um, the issue of like lack of access.
2: Right. Yeah. And there are there are places in um, the country where the nearest center for abortion is more than 10 hours away. Add to that mandatory wait periods and you have a situation where you may have to drive an entire day and then stay in a hotel for several more days between your first appointment and your actual abortion. And then you might need a little bit of time before recovering for recovering before driving back home. So if we're like adding all this up, the whole trip could take upwards of a week, cost up to a couple of thousands of dollars in travel and medical fees in addition to taking several days off of work if you have kids especially if you're a single parent you also have to figure out childcare for that week you might be gone so when you look at somebody who finds out they're pregnant at eight weeks they may have at most three months to get a few thousand dollars a week's worth of vacation days and a very patient babysitter together to make an abortion happen and for some people that is just out of reach which is the point
0: Yeah, totally. I wanted to recommend this movie called Unpregnant that I watched recently. I believe it's on HBO. Um, And I just, it's like a really good example of how a lot of these obstacles work. So the basic premise is it's about a high school senior and um, she is white and from like a pretty well-to-do background. So those are my critiques of this film. However, what I think is valuable about it is that she's from a very Christian background and she gets pregnant. Um, and she wants an abortion. And her boyfriend is, like, trying to blackmail her about it. He doesn't want her to because he's trying to, like, get her to stay back with him. Her friends are, like, really stigmatizing, so she doesn't tell them. Um, but in the state she lives, she's in Missouri, They she has to have parental consent, um, which she cannot get because her parents are evangelical Christians. So she figures out that, like, the nearest abortion clinic is, like, three states away. Um, and she has to, like all this money, she ends up, like, having to pawn something, which I won't tell what it is because it's a spoiler, but it's just, like, this whole to-do of her, like, getting to this appointment, and it just shows, like, how all of these things, like, really compound, um, on, like, just how many obstacles she had of, like, she can't go to her parents, so also that affects, like, being able to maybe access money, um, and, Yeah, I think the drive, I forget the whole, the entire movie is like her trying to get to this appointment and having to like drive across several states. Um, So yeah, but it is a heart wrenching film and I would recommend it.
1: Yeah, I feel like also like we were talking about last week with voting rights, like a lot of these policies, they maybe it's like at the federal level, this right is technically enshrined in law, but then there are all these ways at the state and local level that people are actually prevented from accessing that right in practice. Um, So like we've been saying since the start of this episode, I think like, while it's really important to have these federal protections in certain ways, a lot of these fights are like on this very local practical level of like, how is the right continuing to erode these rights even once they're in the law, technically. Um, so, another example of this that I wanted to talk about that all like generally happens at the state and local level um, is for people who are incarcerated um, or in immigration detention. So, one thing that can happen is pregnant people who have already had some sort of contact with the legal system. Um, so, for example, maybe someone is like arrested for a low level drug possession charge um, and they happen to be pregnant at the time. There have been cases of pregnant people being put in jail to supposedly prevent them from using drugs while they're pregnant, um, which I think is just very cruel and inhumane. And also people continue to use drugs in prisons and jails. So there's not really evidence that this actually works. Um, But it also would make it very difficult or impossible for someone to choose to get an abortion later in their pregnancy if they've already been incarcerated to like prevent certain behaviors while they're pregnant. And legally, people in prison do have the right to get an abortion, but in practice, these rights are often not honored, especially if the person doesn't have the money to pay out of pocket pay for a private doctor themselves because prison healthcare often doesn't provide it. So prisons have to allow people to get an abortion, but they don't have any obligation to provide it themselves or to make it at all easy to access them. Abortions are actually considered an elective procedure, which basically means they can be like the prison can delay them for basically any reason. Um, like, I don't know if they claim that you like did something wrong, you broke some sort of rule in the jail. They can delay your ability to get access to this procedure um, or in some cases deny it entirely. And folks have probably heard about this, but there have also been a lot of cases of people in immigration detention detention being denied even this sort of minimal right to like pay to access your own abortion. So they're essentially being forced to experience an unwanted pregnancy and birth while incarcerated, um, which is obviously very fucked up and just another way that the state tries to exercise control over the most marginalized pregnant people in our society.
0: Ugh, bad. It's bad. You know?
1: Yeah. So true. (laughs)
0: but uh speaking of things that are bad i wanted to also talk about how covid has been affecting abortion access because can you even have an episode without talking about covid anymore you cannot no you can't (laughs) you really can't no so (laughs) shockingly covid also has been affecting access um a lot of service providers have had to close but even when they remain open um because many have closed there's increased travel restrictions um social distancing measures job losses and shortages of the medication that's used for medication abortions um and then going back to the gail rubin quote i read in the beginning um i think this really ties in what she was getting at there several states including texas and ohio did attempt to use covid as an excuse to ban all abortions by saying that they were non-essential medical procedures Um, That was ultimately overruled by a court hearing, but it was in place in Texas at least, I believe, for approximately a month. And um, because of part of what Kellen was talking about with um, how abortions become harder later term, not the actual procedure becomes harder, finding a place that will do it becomes harder because of those bans. Um, Like, a lot of people, by the time that was lifted, they were no longer eligible to get one in in Texas. Um, And so... Yeah, that is now overruled, but was still very bad. Um, But one potentially good thing that has come out of the increase in telemedicine is that there's now um, been substantial proof in studies that medication abortion via telemedicine is just as safe, as effective as going in person. So that could really, greatly increase access for people, um, especially in rural areas who otherwise have difficulty um, getting to a clinic at all. But, of course, there are currently 19 states that require abortion providers to be physically present with their patients, um, which, once again, is essentially in place to ban this type of abortion because it would make access so much easier. So it's a little little pro-con wrapped into one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So we've talked a lot about the things that are terrible about abortion access in the U.S. Um, Now we wanted to turn to a little bit more positive stuff, talking about some of the cool organizing that's happening around increasing access to abortions um, outside of the legal framework like Roe v. Wade necessarily, but kind of more some of the local and practical efforts that are going on. Um, So one thing I wanted to start out by talking about is this article that um, this writer named Ariel Swernoff wrote earlier this year um, in a magazine called Jewish Currents um, that basically was about uh, it was a step by step guide of how to give yourself an abortion at home. Um, so this article goes through all the ways, like how to get access to the medications that you need, um, different ways that you might be able to get access to them online or through a doctor. And then what the things you need to watch out for are as you're going through the process. So if you're doing this without a doctor's oversight, there are some things that you like need to watch out for in terms of, like, is something potentially dangerous happening that I might actually need to go to the doctor? Um, So kind of just going through, like, all of those things you might need to know. Um, And to me, this is just a really cool example. Um, I mean, one, when I saw this article come out early this year, I was really surprised to see it. Um, I think just because it's so common for information about women's bodies and pregnant people's bodies to be like hidden from us Mm -hmm. and kept from us. Just to see this in like a mainstream publication was really cool to me. Um, And the fact that a lot of these federal and state policies against abortion access are about hiding information from pregnant people and you know, limiting their access to information about different options they may have um, and what is really safe for their own body. So I thought that this was a really cool way of democratizing this information. This article is available for free online and anyone can read it. obviously, this still isn't as good as just having, you know, free, easy access to abortion Mm -hmm. with someone with medical training, because that would be the safest. But I do think it's really cool that we're at a point where we have some of these medications that make it like fairly medically safe, in terms of options for like an at home, do it yourself abortion, um, that it's like possible for activists to start sharing this information with each other um, and like democratizing it.
3: Yeah no I've been thinking about this article I hadn't read it before you had linked it and so when I first read it it like really really struck me and I've honestly been thinking about it ever since I read it just because I also was like surprised to see it in like this relatively mainstream publication Um, but I think my like first thought as I was reading it was like okay what would I do if I needed an abortion like in like my past experience, I think the time that I maybe came close was I have like taken plan B before, but even with that, I think there are lots of shortcomings to plan B. It's it's expensive. It's like $50 for a single dose over the counter and its effectiveness drops off like 72 hours after the time you like believe you may have gotten pregnant. And I think if you weigh over a certain amount, I believe it's 170 pounds, there's evidence that it just doesn't work at all. And so like that aspect of, um, giving i don't i don't, wouldn't call this necessarily giving yourself an abortion but like ending a potentially unwanted pregnancy also pre, uh, presents certain hurdles but i think like this article itself like taught me so much and i didn't know any of the information in it prior to reading it and i agree like there are still some like dangerous elements to it and there are also some like hurdles to overcome like access to misoprostol, which is the medication that they recommend that you take to induce an abortion. I remember specifically being struck by the part that was like, if you can have somebody who like presents as a cis man go ask for the medication at the pharmacist, it's more likely that they will give it to Mm. you because they are like less likely to believe that like a person who presents as a cis man would be causing an abortion, which I was like, oh, that's like still kind of fucked up. But like- you know, as you said, I think it's, like, cool that the option is there and the information um, that you need to be able to induce an abortion at home if that is something that you require is, like,
2: available online. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I, before we go any further, I guess, thought it might actually be useful to talk about what abortion is. I realized that we, like, it's mm-hmm. possible that some of our listeners maybe don't really even know what abortion like what it sort of on a medical level obviously it means you're not pregnant anymore mm-hmm. but like what that process looks like I mean I remember being in high school and being told by like the debate class teacher that an abortion was when they did a surgery to cut up a fetus into tiny pieces and then and that's what I was told oh yeah my god, god
0: what that's yeah so <laughs>
2: yeah um,
0: uh, that's a horrible so... thing to say. <laughs>
2: uh turns out that's like not really what happens um uh <laughs> i'm just like speechless remembering this and then he was like so raise your hands if you're in favor of abortion oh jesus christ know. oh my god um i love love it love it Ugh. um but anyway so so there's sort of different ways that like an abortion can take place so that the that the, the one that Um, we've been talking about over the like past couple minutes is like an abortion pill. Um, So there are are ways to sort of do it at home if you get access to like the the active ingredients. Basically, there are also like abortion pills that are made for that reason that like you can also get access to at Planned Parenthood if you're early enough in um, your term where you can just go home and you take one pill and then a little bit later, you take another pill. And basically what happens is that you start bleeding um, and cramping and um, you end up sort of passing like large blood clots. And um, one of those blood clots ends is like the tiny clump of cells that is the fetus and that's what happens. It's like a very heavy period, um, somewhere between a heavy period and like a very early miscarriage. Um, Other ways that it can be done um, are um, one thing is called vacuum aspiration, which basically it sounds kind of scarier than I think it actually is, um, where you go in and have a healthcare professional sort of, um, use, uh, uh, like open up if you've had like a pap smear it's kind of like that, um, uh, have a speculum kind of inserted into the vagina and cervix, and then have a little tiny tube or a syringe that goes in and does basically just a small amount of suction to clear the uterus of its contents. Um, that can happen during the first trimester, which is up to 12 weeks of being pregnant. Um, as we've discussed, like people often don't realize that they're pregnant until eight weeks so first trimester abortions may not be accessible for all kinds of reasons that we've talked about. In um, second trimester, you're more likely to get what's called dilation and evacuation, which in some ways isn't that different. Um, you might have to take some of the misoprostol, um, if I said that right to, um, kind of like loosen things up basically. Um, and then you'll do the same thing. You'll have, you'll have the, um, you know, tool kind of like open stuff up down there. (laughs) Um, and then have a little bit of vacuum suction and also basically use medical tools to sort of scrape the inside of your uterus. You usually get some anesthesia, so it's not as painful as that kind of sounds. Um, and that's it. Um, and so those are the, basically the kinds of ways that you get an abortion. Um, And I realized like going into this episode that I didn't know the sort of finer medical points of what that stuff looked like. I knew about the pill version, but I didn't know the sort of ins and outs of a medical abortion of a sort of more, it's not enough surgical, but um, the version where you go in and get that done. So, yeah, so that's sort of what it looks like. But in terms of other ways of getting involved in organizing, A big one is giving to abortion funds or getting active in abortion funds, which is basically um, they're exactly what they sound like groups of people who take in money and use it to secure abortions and then also like secure housing and transportation, especially for people who may not have access to those things or may not have the money to pay for them on their own, because obviously those are really important for people who are in places like Mississippi, where again, you may have to travel 10 to 15 hours to get the kinds of care that you need.
1: Yeah. um, And one example of a group people can check out um, to find out more is the National Network of Abortion Funds. Um, So this is a good resource that sort of compiles a lot of different abortion funds across the country. So either if you need help accessing an abortion or paying for it, or if you're looking to donate to help others access abortions, that's a good resource to check out. Um, I also wanted to talk a little bit about some groups that are helping people access abortions. Um, these things such as like providing housing and transportation that a lot of folks might have trouble accessing, especially if they need to go to a different state. Um, so as we've started to see the rollback that we've been talking about of some of the protections of Roe v Wade and many states where it's difficult to impossible to access an abortion depending on your circumstances. There are these activist groups that are starting to help people travel to other states to get abortions um, and also find a place to stay while they're there, Um, including so there's like different networks of folks who are like volunteers who will let people stay in their home um, while they're visiting this other state in order to have the procedure. So if you're in New York, there's a group called the Haven Coalition. That's a great organization doing this work to check out. Um, The Bridget Alliance is one that works with both people who are traveling to New York and also places in the Western U.S., so Colorado and New Mexico as well. And in the Midwest, there's the Midwest Access Coalition. So these are all pretty locally based groups that are really trying to help folks who live in or near these areas who are having trouble paying for traveling to an abortion Um, and like all of the attendant costs of transportation and housing. Uh, Obviously, these groups aren't a solution to anti abortion legislation, and they don't see themselves that way. But this is definitely a form of harm reduction to try to help people, particularly low income people who wouldn't necessarily otherwise be able to access abortions affordably when they need to. Another form of, like, activism that I know
2: people, activism and organizing that I know people who've been engaged in is um, centers around crisis pregnancy centers and, like, handing out flyers and trying to be at those places to redirect people who don't know better than to go to them. And if you're wondering what crisis pregnancy centers are, they're places that are set up a lot of times by religious groups or right-wing groups that masquerade as, like, Planned Parenthood-esque sort of centers, but are really there entirely to convince people not to get abortions. Mm. So if you go to a quote unquote crisis pregnancy center, the people that are there are trained to tell you, to, to talk to you as though they're giving you all of the options and just helping you make a choice that's best for you. But in reality, what they're doing is they're telling you about all the terrible things that will happen if you get an abortion. So, you know, it might be, they might tell you that it's medically risky, or they might tell you that, you know, they might go into the, I don't know if any of y'all saw Juno, but like, I'm sure y'all saw Juno. I don't know why I said it like that. Uh, I don't know if any of (laughs) y'all. I did not. (laughs) I did not. Oh my God. Okay. Well, first of all,
0: I was obsessed. i have
2: homework. It's very
0: problematic, but I was obsessed.
2: I was also obsessed, Zoe. I feel like we were the right, we were like, high school when i
0: think June i was definitely
2: in middle school or something
3: yeah like i was that. like
0: 14 michael Sarah, and ellen page were like my two crushes it was just yeah. the the mm. soundtrack of juno is really good though i will say it
2: is good it's
3: a <laughs> okay. good soundtrack yeah well, i yes. have a lot of time inside so oh I'll yeah i'll put it on my list
0: <laughs> it does get weird though like okay. just content warning <laughs> it gets weird
2: I also don't know how well the like humor has aged, but I thought a lot of it was super funny um at the at that time. And also, I did not have a crush on Ellen Page, but I did have a huge crush on her best friend in the
0: movie. I love that uh, for us.
2: Yeah. We could have wow. double dated. We could have. <laughs> um <laughs> but in Juno, there's this Juno uh no not to spoil the movie for people, but Juno gets pregnant. And um, in the movie, she goes to have an abortion and there's this um, one of her classmates is like protesting outside the um, doing like a, a one person protest outside the abortion center. And it talks about how Juno's fetus probably has like fingernails and has a heartbeat. At that point, and like that's the kind of information that you get at like crisis pregnancy centers. Oh, it's like all the right wing sort of talking points, but slightly more subtle than what you would have seen in Juno or what you might see at like a march for life, um, because these people are not angry, they're really nice and like act like they're there to help you. But the entire point is that they're funded by like right wing and conservative Christian groups and intended specifically to convince people not to people who are pregnant not to get abortions. Um, And so one thing to be really careful about when, for example, if you are like in a in a position where you want to get an abortion to Unfortunately, you have to do some pretty serious research to make sure that you know where you're going is actually a place that gives abortions and not just a counseling center. Um, Because those are really, really numerous, unfortunately, especially in places where there aren't that many. But there are still like crisis pregnancy centers in New York City. Like, it's it's all over the country. Anyway, one thing that I know that, um, for example, some DSA chapters have done is to organize around crisis pregnancy centers and either try to get them shut down or, like, hand out information to people who are going inside to make sure that they know what they're getting Mm -hmm. into. Um, And so that's, like, another realm of advocacy that a person can get into um, is, like, these really disastrous, like, uh, uh, centers that exists again only to push people away from abortion.
0: Yeah, there is also one of those in the movie that I mentioned earlier on pregnant. So, has it all.
2: Everything you need to know about abortion you can learn from Do you know from teen movies <laughs> and this episode. And the, yeah, no, this episode is a much better, uh, much better <laughs> I have to say.
0: Yeah, any other thoughts on abortion?
1: Uh, It's good. We should allow it. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Perfect. (laughs) Oh, I do
2: have a story that I'll tell briefly since we do have time. Okay. Okay. So (laughs) I don't know if this guy listens to the podcast, but... Oh, I hope he does. He, like, harassed people, like, out of Chicago DSA when I was there. So, like... Oh, my gosh. Highly problematic dude.
0: Oh, so I hope he does not listen. Right.
2: Yeah, but he... There was like a point where there was a group, this was like two or three years ago, where we were talking on Twitter, some of us from the podcast about potentially getting like season of the bitch, like matching like rose tattoos or something. And he got in our mentions and was like, you know that, like, this is going to be an identifying thing for when, like, you know, we start having, like, concentration camps. They're going to know you're a socialist and send you straight there. Like, for self-protection, you definitely shouldn't get any tattoos that identify you as a a leftist. Um, And we started, like, kind of arguing with him, being like, what the fuck are you talking about and why are you talking to us? but anyway he wouldn't shut up and kept being like you definitely shouldn't do this like the- they're gonna take you away and like put you in a gas guest- like really what? like you will die if y- you,
3: you get, get a rose season. tattoo <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> um, and it was so ridiculous and the thing that finally shut him up was uh, from the podcast account I just tweeted in all caps our bodies are choices <laughs> and that was
3: yes um, <laughs> truly speechless in the name of that tweet
2: oh my god so wow there you go it applies to so many things abortion and also getting left quote-unquote leftist men to stop telling you not to get tattoos (laughs) first As someone who got a rose tattoo literally today. For, I, was I was about to say. That. <laughs> yeah. I was literally just thinking that. <laughs>
0: you did not take this man's advice. So. I did
2: it. I did not. What a great
3: full circle story. There you go. All right. That was our episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, you can um, support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch. There you will get access to our discord, which is a really great place. And you will get access to our reading group that meets every every two weeks, I think now. And uh, just get a lot of awesome things. And you can also follow us on, I don't know what else to say. It's just awesome. Um, <laughs> it's
0: just awesome. Just join. Yeah.
3: Yeah. Glowing endorsements. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at Season of the Bee on Instagram at Season of the Bee and you can rate review and subscribe to our podcast on itunes you can also listen to us on spotify soundcloud and uh other places to get podcasts and you can also (laughs) send us an email at seasonofthebee at gmail.com all right
0: love you all love Love you Bye. you. Bye. bye Bitch